Please open your Bibles with me as I read this morning's text. Found in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. The book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice crying, Praise our God, all you his saints, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty thunder peals, crying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When I read that text earlier this week, I was so deeply impressed again that Bethlehem is a vision of God. A God who is a God of salvation and glory and power, verse 1. A God who has judgments that are true and just. Verse 2. A God who vindicates his servants and avenges their blood. Verse 3. A God of small people and great people. Verse 5. An almighty God who reigns sovereign over all things. Verse 6. And a God who arranged from all eternity for the marriage of his son to a bride whom he has beautified and purified with the shedding of his own blood. Bethlehem is a vision of God. And I wrote in last week's Star, and I said at the leadership retreat that we exist to reassert this vision of God everywhere in life. And then I preached last Sunday, and I said that the love and the courage and the freedom that it takes to put God on the agenda everywhere in life and to spread the vision of God and to reassert His rightful place in the world takes a coming together to stir each other up to love and to strength and encouragement. And so Bethlehem exists to reassert that vision and to strengthen that vision And then when you think about it, the heart from which that strengthening and that 
spreading come must be a certain kind of heart if this is going to be authentic. It has to be a heart in which that vision of God is savored, loved, enjoyed, delighted in, honored, cherished, relished. Because if the vision isn't savored, everybody's going to see through the phoniness of trying to strengthen someone in the vision or spread the vision. Therefore, Bethlehem exists not only to reassert the truth of the vision of God everywhere in the world and to strengthen that vision through small groups and camaraderie and mutual exhortation and encouragement, but most deeply and most fundamentally, we exist as a church to savor God. To enjoy God. To delight in God. To cherish God. To honor God. To fear God. To stand in awe of God. Which means to worship God. The angel had been communicating with John in the book of Revelation on the Isle of Patmos for some time. John had been exiled to the island of Patmos, as you know, for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. And the angels were coming to John periodically and opening heaven and allowing him to see things that were to come and things that were happening in heaven. In chapters 17 and 18, which I want to use to put our text in context, John sees God's destruction of Babylon. Babylon is, I believe, a symbol or a designation for the final climactic embodiment of rebel, godless civilization. Embodied in a great city. The end time center of human power and human wisdom and human pleasure and human glory. This city is called a harlot. Look at chapter 17, verses 1 and 2 with me. Come, the angel says, come. I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who is seated upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. Then at the end of the chapter, look at verse 18. The angel says, says, the woman that you saw is the great city which has dominion over the kings of the earth. So she's a harlot. She's a city. She's Babylon. How does Babylon get power over the kings of the earth? The answer is she gets power over the kings of the earth the same way all prostitutes get power over their patrons. Namely, by playing off the lusts of the patron. And the lusts of the kings of the earth are for the glory and the power and the wealth of Babylon. And they will prostitute anything in order to have this power, these pleasures, this glory, this wealth. 
And so Babylon holds the world in power by playing off their lust and everything that is good that God made, that is human, that comes together in a city. Babylon prostitutes to commercial gain and gives herself to the lusts of the nations. And in that process of prostituting what God has given that is good to the lust for gain and power and glory and pleasure, the people of God are laid waste in Babylon. Look at chapter 18, verse 24. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been slain on earth. And so you see the symbolic meaning there of this Babylon. It encompasses the whole earth, as it were, this city holding nations in its power, godless in prostituting everything good and slaying the people of God. And what these chapters teach is that Babylon's coming down. Look at verse 1, chapter 19. Well, let's go to, first of all, the beginning of chapter 18 before we see the response in 19. Chapter 18, verse 2. The angel cries out, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Then there's this picture. I don't know if you've ever seen a, a great big millstone, but I saw one down in... In Georgia, I'd never seen how big they can get. Probably weigh as much as a car. And the picture is this millstone is taken by this angel and just thrown out into the ocean. And it says in verse 21, chapter 18, that the angel takes up the stone like a great millstone and throws it into the sea, saying, So shall Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and shall be found no more. Straight to the bottom of the ocean. Now in chapter 19, at the end of this two-chapter long description of the destruction of Babylon, heaven is open for John, and what he sees is a worship service. And the worship service is the response of heaven to the destruction of Babylon. Now let's read verse 1, chapter 19. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. And then you come to the end of this worship service that John sees, and the angel is standing there talking to John in verse 10, and John is so overwhelmed by what he has seen in heaven as a response to the destruction of Babylon that he falls down at the face of the messenger and he starts to worship the angel. And the angel says in verse 10, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. That's where I got the title of the message. I love that sentence. Two whole words. Worship God. Don't worship the wealth of Babylon. Don't worship the power of Babylon. Don't worship the pleasures of Babylon. Don't worship the glory of Babylon. Don't worship the messenger that comes from heaven to tell you about the downfall of Babylon. Worship one being. Worship God. That's the point of my sermon, this text, and the whole Bible. 
everything in the Bible, everything in the book of Revelation, everything in redemptive history is unfolding and taking place to bring about this one great purpose that we might worship God. Bethlehem is an alien outpost in Babylon. We exist to reassert God's rightful place in Babylon. To reassert the truth that the neglect of God under the guise of neutrality and openness is in fact rebellion against God whose purpose for His creatures is not that they feel neutral about Him but that they love Him and worship Him and enjoy Him and bow down before Him and cherish Him and honor Him and glorify Him and praise Him and follow Him and delight in His fellowship and long for His return. Neutrality is rebellion. That's what has to be laid on the agenda again in a so-called open culture. The Babylon that surrounds us is not open. It is in rebellion against the living God. And our job is to reassert God in secular commerce, in secular business, in secular education, in secular entertainment, in secular media, in secular arts, in secular sports. All the people of God, men and women, according to Acts chapter 2, are given in these latter days a spirit of prophecy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams and your maidens and your manservants will prophesy. And the spirit of prophecy, according to our text, is the testimony of Jesus. And the testimony of Jesus is, Jesus is Lord of Babylon. And that's the word that is to come out of your mouth everywhere you are in your neighborhood, everywhere you are at work. All your relatives ought to hear you say, Jesus is the Lord of this family reunion. Jesus is the Lord of this computer. Jesus is the Lord of this classroom. Jesus is Lord. No matter what anybody in the universe says to the contrary. That's the spirit of prophecy. And you have been given the spirit of prophecy. All the sons and daughters will prophesy when the spirit comes in fullness. We know what's coming. Babylon is coming down. The reason verse 10 says, worship God, is because that's what our response to the hope of the destruction of Babylon should be. The outposts of the kingdom in the midst of Babylon are intended, therefore, to reassert his rightful place in all of life, Jesus' rightful place, to strengthen one another in small groups, and most fundamentally, this is what this service is all about every Sunday, savoring God. Because without that savoring, that authentic, heartfelt engagement with God, everything else is phony and sham and will not have any power. Corporate worship at Bethlehem is a declaration that in the midst of Babylon, we will not be drawn into her harlotries. See the connection? In your presence, O Lord, is fullness of joy, and at your right hand 
our pleasures forevermore. Therefore, when we gather to savor these pleasures and enjoy you and know you and love you and fellowship with you and honor you and glorify you and praise you, we are openly declaring to the prostitute of Babylon, the power over me and my lust for pleasure is broken because I have been satisfied by the lover of my soul. See the connection? We are free from the harlotries of the world. Corporate worship is the public savoring of the worth of God and the beauty of God and the power of God and the wisdom of God. And therefore, it is an open declaration to all the powers of heaven and all of Babylon, if she will listen, that her allurements over us have no more enslaving power. There is no more Babylonian captivity to the church of God. Jesus has satisfied us as the bread of heaven and the living water. What can she offer us? Worship is not God willing at Bethlehem a routine of hymns, a routine of prayers, a routine of preaching, a routine of anthems. When John fell before the angel and started to worship this glorious being and the angel stopped him the angel did not say now open your hymn book now read a creed now listen to a sermon the angel said worship God and what that means is connect with God Focus on God, not the music. Focus and concentrate on God, not even the sermon. Pursue God. And in all your pursuing and in all your focusing and in all your concentrating, seek by the Holy Spirit to be stirred up in your feelings that you might love Him and delight in Him, and enjoy Him, and cherish Him, and honor Him, and praise Him, and glorify Him from the heart. Because if it doesn't come out of the heart, everything we do is a sham. God has said some pretty gross things about how that kind of worship smells in the book of Amos. Corporate worship at Bethlehem is a blatant, public savoring of God in the midst of seductive Babylon. It is a flagrant, open enjoyment of God in the midst of the allurements of the Babylonian captivity. It is a declaration, you can't make me prostitute my mind anymore. You can't make me prostitute my heart anymore to the pleasures or the powers or the wealth or the glory of the world. I have been taken captive by the lover of my soul and your power, Babylon, is broken. That's what worship declares. We have a lover. 
We don't need you. You can't have us, not by television, not by advertisements, not by anything. We belong to God, the satisfier of our longings, and we will celebrate His majesty and His worth and His beauty and His glory and His power and wisdom and justice and goodness and love and eternal being. We will get our joys from God. There she goes. Now, in order to worship God like that, you've got to see God the way heaven saw God in this text. Heaven saw something that moved them to shout hallelujah. And I want you to see in closing, very briefly, three things that heaven saw. Number one, heaven saw the judgment of Babylon. Verse two. 19, verse 2. For his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And heaven sees this judgment and says, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Do you respond like that to the judgments of God upon the enemies of the Lord? Not only that, verse 3 says that what they saw was that the judgment was everlasting. Once more they cried, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. This worship service began in heaven by hallelujahs. That God has brought everlasting judgment upon Babylon. The second thing that heaven saw that moved her to worship from the bottom of her heart was the rule and omnipotent authority of God. Look at verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty thunder peals crying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Pile up those words. Lord God, Almighty reigns. What moves heaven to worship, what moves them to shout Hallelujah is because when they see God, they see Him reigning over Babylon, yes, even over wicked Babylon. Let me show you that from chapter 17. There's a very powerful verse here in Revelation 17. The reason I want you to see this is because I ask the question, as the end of the age draws near, how will little bands of believers continue to enjoy God in the midst of Babylon? How will our love not grow cold when wickedness is multiplied, as Jesus says? How will little pockets... Outposts of faith and joy be sustained out there in the midst of secular Babylon? The answer is God reigns over Babylon. Revelation 17, 16. And the ten horns that you saw, they are the beast. They and the beast will hate the harlot, Babylon. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh. And burn her up with fire. For 
God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and giving over their royal power to the beast. Until the words of God shall be fulfilled. You see it? Couldn't be any clearer, could it? God reigns over Babylon. God reigns over the beast. God reigns over the ten horns. God reigns over every millisecond of activity as this age draws to a close. And therefore, the ground of a little suffering group of believers in the highlands of Peru, having been decimated by the shining path, Marxist guerrillas, the foundation of their joy the morning after losing 30 of their members to the machine guns is our God reigns over the shining path. Now, that may not appeal to your immediate emotional framework, but that's the biblical hope. God reigns over the Marxists. God reigns over the beast, the ten horns, and Babylon. And therefore, if it's five people gathered to praise, or if it's five thousand people gathered to praise, we can be triumphant in our worship. Your small group may feel so insignificant. There may be so many problems surrounding you in the world, but I just pray that you will look up and ask God to part the heavens and watch this worship service take place where they shout thunder peals of hallelujah over the sovereignty of God over everything that's happening in Minneapolis and will happen until Jesus comes. He reigns. And there's one last thing that they saw that moved them to worship, namely the marriage of the Son of God. Verse 7, let us rejoice, they said, let us rejoice and exult and give God glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. All of redemptive history has been moving towards this one goal, the final Intimate union of the Son of God and the people of God in joyful fellowship forever and ever, unbroken by any rising Babylons anymore. Someone might say, in view of verse 6, it says that the bride made herself ready. Why should we give God the glory? Or is that verse 7? 7 or 6. The bride made herself ready. So why give God the glory? The answer is given in verse 8. It was granted, given, it's a gift. It was granted to her to be clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So how did the bride make herself ready? She put on fine linen, bright and pure. And what is the fine linen? It is the righteous deeds of the saints. And how did she come to do these righteous deeds? They were given to her. You never did one righteous deed in your life that wasn't given to you. Not one. 
every righteous deed that flows from this sin-sick, corrupt heart is a work of God Almighty by His Holy Spirit. To God be the glory for my clothing. We believe by an act of will and a work of our own mind. We do righteous deeds by acts of will and works of our own mind. Yes. But why do we? Where does the motive come from? By what strength and power do we see through any good inclination? The answer is, it was given to her to be clothed with righteous deeds. Or as Philippians 2 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you to will and to do his good purpose. Nobody has ever done any single good work to the glory of God that was not a gift from God Almighty. And therefore, when they said, rejoice and exult and give God the glory, they were right. So Bethlehem, as long as we have breath, will go on asserting the rightful place of God in all of life, strengthening the vision of God in small groups, but most deeply and most preciously and most importantly, will go on savoring God. And so I plead with you, with all my heart and in the name of Jesus, worship God. Let's bow our heads before the Lord. Many of you, if you are like me and hearing these words, are experiencing a real significant longing in your heart to savor God more, to go more deep with God and to enjoy Him more and trust Him more and love Him more and praise Him more and glorify Him more, honor Him more. And savor and worship Him more deeply. So, Father, I ask that you would grant our heart's desire. And a few of you, perhaps, are so moved to long for that in a special way that you'd like to pray with somebody after this service and ask for us to pray that your obstacles to that experience would be moved. And so I invite you to come to the front after the service as we're leaving and There'll be teams of people here who who long nothing more right now than to pray with you about that. I think it'd be good, Dean and and Leah, if we we sang Majesty as we close. We didn't have time to do that in the first service, but maybe maybe we can do it now. Let's sing it together. Let's stand.